Coming home well. I'm your host, Tyler Piron, and we are continuing with our series with the Department of Veterans Services here in Virginia. We have Sam Cohen Allen. She's an appeals specialist at the Department of Veterans Services, and we're continuing our theme of how the heck do you deal with the VA and figure out all the things you're entitled to and how not to make big mistakes. We're going to talk about presumptive conditions, what they are, and how they apply, and the VA's duty to assist. I know a lot of people think that going to the VA and trying to get benefits is an adversarial process. You have to fight for every inch. Well, that's really not true, but I'm not the expert. Sam's the expert. Welcome, Sam. Hey, Tyler. Good to be here. Welcome back. I'm so glad that you're here. Presumptive conditions. It's in the news. There's all sorts of things that are kind of new. We've talked about presumptive conditions for years with Agent Orange, but that's like just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? There's a and there's a lot of misunderstanding about presumptive conditions. So I, I'm really glad we're spending some time talking about it today. And and we'll focus on three kind of areas within presumptive service connection. And you already mentioned Agent Orange exposure. We'll talk about that. Um, we'll talk about Camp Lejeune water contamination. There's presumptions associated with that. And then we will talk about kind of the most recent nuanced one, which is related to burn pits, which we know is really applicable to a lot of veterans. And these presumptions, you know, cover many different periods of war and many years. And so we don't want to oversimplify it, but we will talk about each one and then some kind of similarities between them and just starting really with, you know, what is presumptive service connection? So we'll go from there. So presumptive, like making you presume something is related. So what exactly does the VA mean when they say presumptive condition? Yeah, so the VA, presumptive service connection means the VA presumes that certain disabilities are diagnosed in certain veterans were related to their military service in the kind of the most foundational, simple way. If we look at Agent Orange exposure, what we're looking at is this presumption satisfies what we discussed, I believe it was last time or the time before, the nexus element. So going back to our basics of service connection, we have a diagnosed disability, we have an in-service event, and we have a nexus between the two. And the presumption, what this does is it takes the place of that nexus in essence that you must otherwise establish when you're seeking entitlement to service connection in a disability compensation claim. So it, so to to, to have that presumption, it, it makes things a little bit easier, like you alluded to at the beginning. It, it doesn't have to be adversarial, but it's not also just, you know, a walk in the park to establish service connection. You still have certain elements you need to show. You have to show that you meet the criteria for that Agent Orange exposure presumption. And we'll talk about that. And then you have to show, of course, that you have a diagnosed disability. And for Agent Orange exposure, there's a list of certain disabilities that are associated with that presumption. And I'm sure many veterans are aware of a lot of the, the common ones. We have diabetes mellitus type two and Parkinson's disease and uh, ischemic heart disease. 
And most recently, we've had three added to the presumption list, bladder cancer, hypothyroidism, and Parkinsonism. So we have a number of them, and I can go on. We have Hodgkin's disease, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, various cancers, including lung cancer, prostate cancer. And there is a clear list of the presumptive conditions associated with Agent Orange exposure. You can actually find it very easily on the VA website on publichealth.va.gov, and they'll list exactly what disabilities are associated with that presumption. They stray from that list at all, or is that like rock solid? Whatever's on that list is it. You know, the most recent additions were this year. So they are constantly reevaluating conditions to be added to this list. And right now, one that we've been watching closely is hypertension presumptive, but there is a lot of evidence showing a strong correlation. So the goal is hopefully in the next maybe five, 10 years, it would be added to the presumptive list. But for now, we still make the argument that it ought to be service connected, but it's not on the presumptive list. Although it is dynamic, again, three conditions, three major conditions were added just this year. So it is not set in stone. It's constantly being reevaluated. And part of how they do that, and I won't get into all the details there, but there is an Agent Orange uh, registry that veterans can sign up for and they can have their condition reviewed and and their period of service shared with the VA. This will be a VHA exam. Uh, And then they can take that data and track trends with respect to disabilities that veterans have all in the benefit of the veteran trying to increase the number of disabilities that are added to that list. It's non-exhaustive, but it is, it's a good, I mean, it's a good list. There's a lot of disabilities on there. Of course, we would like for there to be more because we see more veterans who have other conditions. I had one veteran this past week who service connection for melanoma. Um, melanoma is not on the presumptive list, but we believe strongly that is where he obtained his melanoma from his service in Vietnam. So we, with a great medical nexus letter, evidence to show he was in Vietnam, we did everything we could uh, to make that argument and we'll see what happens, but it wouldn't be a presumptive. So it wouldn't be as easy to establish as diabetes mellitus, let's say. Because that would be the hard part. Without this presumptive saying that I developed diabetes 30 years later, right? when you serve, you know, maybe two or three years or a year as a draftee in Vietnam to say 30 years later, I have this condition, whatever that condition is, especially something like Parkinson's or diabetes. It's hard to draw that connection and say, yeah, that one year that I served, that's the reason. Right. Most of the time they'd be like, no, nah, I don't think so. But with yeah. the presumptive, you don't have to make that proof anymore. I have right. X, I served Y, you're good to go. Right. Exactly. And that's the whole point of these presumptives. They're supposed to, you know, they, the, there's enough evidence out there to show that there's a correlation between these diseases and cancers and disabilities and Agent Orange exposure. So this is supposed to alleviate some of the burden of the process. And that's just, I will say that's for our in-country service in Vietnam. We also, you know, when we we talk about Agent Orange exposure for our brown water veterans and our blue water veterans, and then our Thailand veterans, it's not as easy to establish. Of course, we had the law that became more favorable to our blue water veterans in the last two years. So the presumption was expanded to them, which means all of those conditions that I just listed and then some on the public Public Health VA website is now a presumptive for veterans who served in the 12 nautical miles from the demarcation line of Vietnam and Cambodia. But we still have to show that they qualify as Blue Water Navy veterans. So we have to get ship logs and the VA has to do that research. And again, we'll talk about the duty to assist later on. Uh, But 
we have to still show that they meet the service period uh, requirement and the 12 nautical miles and or the blue, the brown water Navy requirement or in country in Vietnam or One of my favorite ones to challenge on appeal is our Thailand veterans who served at a Royal Air Force base, for example, and they have a harder time. I don't know if you've talked to many Thailand veterans, but we see a lot of them on appeal and we really encourage veterans who served at an Air Force base uh, in Thailand between that January 9, 1962 and May 7, 1975 time period who have that service and have a presumptive condition or don't have a presumptive condition to, to file a claim and appeal. And, and we can talk more about why. I'm happy to just keep doing that. The, the Thailand veterans are really interesting to me because it's such a limiting MOS for them to have- It's just the guards around the fences, right? Yeah, it's the patrol. It's essentially the military police or perimeter security. And the reason they- But say everybody that, gets told to go do that. Right. And it's so limiting because it's actually written into the law. However, you know, we know that there was significant use of of Agent Orange along the fence line perimeters of these bases. We also know that many veterans lived on base and were in and out of base on a daily basis. So maybe not every day, maybe let's say they went off base into the town on the weekends. They're still coming in and out of the perimeter. But many of them for their MOSs that were not just these two very limiting MOSs were in and on and off base constantly. And so what what the VA will do is they'll deny, let's say I'm a I served in Thailand during the requisite time period. I have prostate cancer and I file a claim. And I, I don't even get exam. I get examined. They say, yes, veteran has prostate cancer. But what was the MOS? Well, it didn't meet this very small re- requirement from the VA to have that perimeter associated MOS. So they'll deny and say, well, there's no presumption of service connection, but there's no indication that you meet the requirement and that you were exposed to Agent Orange in, in their VA language. And it's very frustrating for a veteran because they'll think, well, I know what I did. I know what I did every day. I know I served whether it was a year on base or two years, whatever their duty orders were. And so at that point, we would absolutely encourage them to appeal and request a hearing because what we can do with the judge is challenge the position that they didn't have the proximity to the perimeter. We have to gather evidence. So of course, it's an opportunity to be creative again. What we'll do is get buddy statements, talk about their work duties that brought them on or near the perimeter, pull up maps, pictures, letters, statements from former spouses or spouses who said, I went to visit him or her, and this is what we did. So all of that, talking about where they lived and what they did, that is all credible lay evidence on appeal that's exceedingly important to establishing Agent Orange exposure for a Thailand veteran so they can be entitled to that those presumptive conditions. They have a harder time than our other service members who served in country in Vietnam or were bluer or brown water Navy veterans. So definitely uh, don't give up if you are a Thailand veteran. And this sounds like something you did or you, you filed a claim years ago and you gave up because the VA told you you weren't near the perimeter you know, please reach out because there's a lot that we can try to do. Certainly we can't guarantee anything, but there is a lot uh, we can do rather than let the VA tell us that, sorry, too late. So people that served in Thailand, they they had it uh, around the perimeter and only the MPs or the security police, the Air Force MPs, they were the only ones, but we know how borrowed military manpower works and how details and all sorts of assignments happen while you're waiting to do something else. Hey, go with them. 
work this for a month or two or six months. That's how things happen. The military is famous for it with the KP and every other thing. Borrowed military manpower is still a thing in the military. It happens all the time. So it's the same. It's probably even worse back then. But people are getting these diseases and it's they're having a hard time. But if they were in country or brown water, blue water, because that's addressed in separate laws. Mm-hmm. But the guys in Thailand, they're having a harder time because it was very specific. What's jobs? I think that was probably a limiting factor when they wrote the law. Yeah. And we would love to see them expand it. And that's something that we'll say on appeal at the hearing is, you know, this is a a very this is a very limiting MOS description to consider service connection for an agent orange exposure. So that's why we have the opportunity at a hearing to bring that to light, to offer those photos, those lay statements and the testimony from the veteran who remembers most of this like it was yesterday is going to be the most compelling for the judge. So rather than appeal and and hope for the best, request a hearing so you can share your story with the judge so they can hear you and say and ask because they all have questions of their own. They've worked with a lot of these veterans too. So they'll ask enough questions. We'll make sure everything's on the table. So ideally they can say, we're conceding Agent Orange exposure and then give you entitlement to this host of benefits, particularly these presumptive conditions that are associated with Agent Orange exposure. And it's really important because most of the folks that have served in Vietnam are getting older. I mean, it's been over since 1975. So that's a good while ago. (laughs) If you're a veteran, it means you're probably in your 70s. So if you're listening or you know somebody or your grandfather or somebody else, go reach out and ask them. Because that's especially if they have any of these host of conditions. It's all sorts of stuff that I would not think of as being exposed to a defoilant like Parkinson's or or various cancers or diabetes, really. Like that one always threw me, but they do a lot of studies and they say, hey, the people that have this have, that's how they come up with the presumptive stuff right? uh, with a lot of research. So we've talked about Agent Orange and uh, let's go a little bit into the history because it took a long time for the VA to go, this is presumptive. In fact, it was Agent Orange. Was that the first time that they actually came up with presumptive diseases? No, there's actually a lot. If you look, if you're interested, you can go into the CFR and you can look under 3.307, 3.308 and 3.309. And they talk about all of the presumptive conditions going back earlier than that. And they do talk about other disabilities. You can get caught in the, the weeds of it. And there's actually not as much information on the VA website as there is in the governing law. So if you go into the 38 CFR. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and the <laughs> law is where you go get the easy explanation. Right. <laughs> not the VA. Yeah. And there is some good information on the VA website about registries and, and exposure. And, and I will say the publichealth.va.gov, they do list a good amount of that. But even just finding out what bases they're referring to for the Thailand veterans, you have to do some digging. The disabilities are pretty clear because they get so many claims for Agent Orange exposure that they want to have that information readily available. But if you want to go back deeper into the history, I would send you to the statute, to the 38 CFR. It's actually user-friendly, might not be the best word. It's something that I'm in every day. So I've gotten really accustomed to it. But if you have questions about period of service and and what presumption may apply, what disabilities there are, or if you meet the criteria for in-country service, but you have a non-presumptive condition, don't be defeated. You can still attempt to establish service connection, but you don't have that, maybe that burden. Automatic. 
right. It's not as simple, but we absolutely, we absolutely see veterans and will support a claim. The, the kicker is having that strong medical evidence. So thyroid cancer, for example, thyroid cancer is not a presumptive of service. Of but hyperthyroidism is. Right, exactly. That makes and, so much sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a new one. And that's what's so interesting is that was just added. You've got this hypothyroidism. And I have a veteran recently who developed hypothyroidism after having thyroid cancer who meets the criteria for Agent Orange exposure. So after all these years of fighting to try to get thyroid cancer service connected, we may have a much easier time just getting him service connected for hypothyroidism. Which um, is a residual of the cancer. Right. Yeah. So I won't say that it all makes sense, <laughs> but that's what we're here for, to try to help understand how we can apply the presumption. And if you don't meet the presumption, what can we do? We don't want people to feel helpless. We also want to be really candid that it's not so simple, certainly, as I just explained for, for Thailand veterans, but there is so many Vietnam veterans that we are working with right now. It's a huge part of the population uh, who are filing claims because they keep adding these conditions and expanding benefits for blue water, for example, and adding bladder cancer. So it's a very vibrant area of the claims filing uh, and appeal process. So if this sounds like something that is you know ringing true or something your child told you that you need to file for or your wife has been saying for years, it may be time to listen. <laughs> well, and the important thing is you don't have to do it alone. And that's where the Department of Veterans Services is there to go help you. They've got people like Sam that are experts in this law, and they've done it, and they've helped a lot of people. And that's their job is to help you get these benefits that you've earned. Now, they can't guarantee results. I mean, we're dealing with another government agency, and, and there's all sorts of particulars and circumstances. But you have a much better shot if you go into it informed and with an advocate that's going to fight for you. To at least figure out, hey, yeah, this is a good claim, or you're going to have a hard time, but we're going to help. We're going to help make it the best claim we can, and that's really a great thing because there's a lot of organizations out there. You don't have to go to the DVS, but they're here in Virginia. They're free. We have a great veterans population, so they have a lot of folks that are there to help. And that is probably the number one takeaway from this entire series, folks. Go get help. Don't do it alone unless you really know what you're doing. And you don't. Let me tell you right now, you don't know what you're doing. I I know a lot, but I go and ask questions and I go get expert help because there's so many little details that you need to make sure are right. And if you do 100 of them, you might get it down pretty good. But if you're doing your own and you're first, there's that old lawyer saying uh, a lawyer with a, a who's his own client is a, has a fool for a lawyer. You know, you, you can't advocate for yourself the same way as, as somebody else can advocate for you. So we've talked about Agent Orange. There's a lot of people out there that are, are dealing with these issues. But Camp Lejeune, Dirty Water, that's kind of a, a interesting one because like every East Coast Marine has been on Camp Lejeune. And, you right. know, there's East Coast and West Coast Marines. And it's pretty much all of them have been through Lejeune at some point or another. Where did this come from and what is the background of this contaminated water? Yeah, and, and you're right. It is where a lot of our Marine Corps veterans begin their, their service. And, and what you have to show for Camp Lejeune contaminated water presumption is that you served at Camp Lejeune or the Marine Corps uh, Air Station, New River, for at least 30 cumulative days 
from August 1953 to December 1987. It's a really long range of time. And Did they not addition, test the water during this time. It, it, they've since obviously shut down a lot of what was operational at that time, but how it went on for that long, I cannot answer that question. But when I speak to veterans, they're so frustrated because they say, we drank the water, we bathed in the water, we were in the water day in and day out. And they didn't know for years the, the residual effects of that, which of course are, are life-threatening conditions and cancers. And I'll touch on those too. And so you have to have served during that time period and received an other than dishonorable discharge. So as long as you didn't receive a dishonorable discharge upon separation and you meet that criteria, you're likely to have had contact with that contaminated water. And there's a lot of research out there, a lot of scientific material, some on the VA website, other you can just, you can find online, but these contaminants, benzene, TCE, PCE, vinyl chloride, other compounds, um, were all found in the water. So you have a, a wide range of time if you serve there for you know at least 30 cumulative days and you have, again, one of these conditions, they're not as many as the Agent Orange-related presumption, but there's kidney cancer, liver cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, adult leukemia, multiple myeloma, Parkinson's, aplastic anemia, or myodysplastic syndrome, and bladder cancer. And we see a lot of veterans with those conditions. Again, they meet this presumption. They have that period of service at Camp Lejeune. They will get service connected for these conditions more readily than otherwise. But again, if you have a condition not associated with the presumptive list, you can still apply. It is it is more challenging, but you do see success periodically when you have the right medical evidence, when you have a doctor who's treated you for a long time and who supports you and believes you have no other risk factors, you have no family history, you served. We have veterans who served their whole period of service, Some, they, all at Camp Lejeune, who served one, 10, 20 years at, at certain points. So there's a lot of opportunity there and a lot of confusion. You don't need to understand necessarily what you're exposed to. You don't need to prove that you drank the water, just that you served there during that time period. You meet that requirement. You have one of these conditions or other conditions. You know, I have had, I will say, one veteran, she retired from the Marine Corps and we were able to get her service connected for her breast cancer, which is not a presumptive condition, but she served, again, 20 years in the Marine Corps and she had a very strong letter from her oncologist and we were able to get her service connected. And again, it's such a case-by-case -case basis. You know, you can't say this will work for every single veteran, but if you have that supporting doctor and, and private treatment provider and you can make an argument, listen, what else would this have come from? And again, it doesn't, it's not dependent on the case law. It's dependent on the case specific to the veteran. So if we can show that she meets, she, he or she meet all the criteria uh, to establish service connection for the condition. And she, and as I discussed already met the criteria for the Camp Lejeune period of time, can we broaden it to say, well, we know breast cancer isn't on the list, but we believe she ought to be service connected for it. And, and it's worth the argument. It's worth trying. And so it's a little different, each presumptive one to the other. But Camp Lejeune is really interesting. And we, we don't see it as often as we do Agent Orange exposure claims, but it's definitely out there. I'm sure you've heard from veterans who uh, have dealt with this before, too. It's funny because I, I served at Fort McClellan and okay. Aniston Army Depot, and that has not yet been presumptive. But I have no doubt in my mind that the chemical school going mm -hmm. back decades, had tons and tons 
of chemical and, and biological and all these different agents just dumped or fired and tested. And they found all sorts of things there. It's like basically a super fun site, right. but they have not gotten to the point where they've made it presumptive yet. Right. But even the VA admits like, oh, yeah, we see this all the time. We're right. just not sure that it's 100 percent presumptive yet. Yeah. But it's frustrating it's, reading it's, about Fort McClellan. <laughs> it is. And, and yeah. so I've always sort of tracked it because I went to basic training there and yep. did some training. And it used to be the MP in chemical school. And that place, A, was horrible place. Southern Alabama, <laughs> hot, fire ants, clay yeah. everywhere, couldn't keep clean. And then you find out that everything's sort of polluted. And right. 1927 to like 2000, they were yeah. doing chemical stuff. Like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it hit the water table at some point. Yeah, but it's, uh, it's, So it's not there yet. Right. And it's probably not as many people as Lejeune. Mm -hmm. And so you're not getting the pressure as much. And so some of it's political, some of it's medical, kind of both. And that's where some of these presumptives come in with a lot of advocacy, because if it's political, it's law. Anything with a law is going to have a political base because that's how laws get made. Right. But there is science that's backing things up, like with Lejeune. Mm -hmm. They said, hey, this is happening at way greater rates than in the general population. Right. That's how we make the presumptive condition. So you only had to be there 30 days and have one of these presumptive things or something you probably suspect is related to your exposure. Now, if you're there for like a month, TDY, and then 30 years later, you got something, maybe that'd be a weaker case mm -hmm. uh, than if it's not on the presumptive list. But you spend 10 years at Lejeune and you have one of the things, but it's not exactly on the list, like mm -hmm. you said, with the breast cancer. Mm -hmm. There is nothing to lose, really, is there? You can still, you absolutely can still file a claim. If you have the evidence to show you, again, have this condition, you have no other risk factors, you don't have any family history, you don't have any parents, aunts, uncles, nobody has this type of condition. It's rare. And you have a doctor and there's scientific you know, research out there because with a claim, we can submit medical studies and scientific research. And of course, the most helpful is medical evidence specific to the veteran. So a doctor who can speak up, tie all this together. And it is a lot of you know, the onus is on the doctor in some ways when it comes to these claims to really help the veteran. It's not something a doctor has to do. It's certainly something that helps tremendously. And part of what we explain to doctors is you're not going to be called to testify at a hearing. There's no risk in providing this letter to the veteran. There's no conflict of interest. It's purely to help a veteran in a pro-veteran system. Um, if we can put the evidence on equipoise and show that it's at least as likely as not that this condition is related to, let's say, contaminated water at Camp Lejeune, that can go a really long way in, in trying to overcome a negative VA exam who might just say, well, yeah, they served at Lejeune, but they don't have the presumptive condition, so it's denied. And that's kind of it. That's what you'll get when it comes to a VA exam when it's not a presumptive. You're not going to get a, a really in-depth. Sometimes you will. Sometimes you'll say, You'll read an exam report and you'll say, wow, this examiner really spent a lot of time dispelling, you know, this theory of service connection. But oftentimes, if it's not a presumptive, you're not going to get much from the VA. And so we have an opportunity to overcome that with strong private evidence from the veteran for Fort McClellan. 
I have had one or two veterans who served at Fort McClellan, but it's really challenging because like you said, it's not a presumptive association and there is some information online. Absolutely. And there is a population of veterans who are trying to get, you know, this recognized and discussed doesn't seem to be high priority for the VA, although I I can't speak to their priorities, but it's something where a a judge at a hearing will say, well, it's not a presumptive. There's nothing associating the two. Unless you have private medical evidence, nothing's going to happen there. And for a veteran who is living on social security and doesn't have access to private care, it's very challenging for them to overcome that sort of battle for a non-presumptive associated with something like Fort McClellan service. So we'll see. It's worth watching, like you said, though, because you never know. These things are constantly changing and, and evolving and, and presumptions are being added. And we're always looking well, you know, at Sam, it. But you did bring up an important point, which is that you don't have to prove it beyond any reasonable doubt because that's an impossible standard. But it's more likely than not. Like 51 mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. And if it's 50-50, it goes to the V, it goes to the veteran. Right. And so if you can convince a judge on appeal, because mm-hmm. they're going to deny it initially, because yeah. the, the hard and fact black and white rules say this is presumptive. These things are not. You might have had service there, but it's not exactly one of these black and white things. They're going to deny it. Expect that. Right. But that's where getting the appeals and an appeals specialist. That helps you go and go, hey, here's the real story. Here's all this evidence. Here's why it's more likely than not. And if you can convince them that it's like 51%, you're in. Right. And, and that's an important actually, difference. It's actually 50, 50. It's only just 50%, really. Is it? Is there a 50-50 chance that what you have originated in service. And and that's a very reasonable standard for a veteran to meet. And of course, having the assistance of a a VSO and medical evidence and scientific studies and lay statements and all the things that we've talked about building into your claim, appealing with the understanding that while we can't guarantee an outcome, your best shot is appealing and requesting a hearing and bringing all of these pieces together to present them to a judge to make the argument that we're just trying to say it's not 100% certainty. It's not 75. It's not even 60, 51, 50, 50 chance. That's something that we can work with. And I think a lot of veterans don't focus on the 50, 50 chance because in their mind, they believe that this is where this originated from. They know for sure. And we don't have to show for sure. We just have to show that there's a 50, 50 chance. So I'm glad you drew that out a little bit because it is important to understand the standard for the evidence is actually really reasonable when it comes to, to trying to, to show service connection. And last week, when we were talking about the importance of the the, uh, veteran's own statement that Mm -hmm. has so much weight, I didn't realize how much weight, like a really good detailed statement about your service and what you did and what you saw has on these proceedings and, and on appeal and all these other things. You're like, but he's just saying it. But it's actually all the things you would ask someone, but written down in a a cohesive manner so that you go, oh, that makes perfect sense. Right. Or not, you know. Yeah. Have you been piecemealing a claim for a decade? We've had files that are hundreds and hundreds of documents. I mean, it gets up there. We've seen a thousand documents or more. How we can kind of clear the air there is to say, okay, let's, we've filed a statement on this and that and that. 
let's get a statement together. You can read it at your hearing. You can have me read it if you want. We can submit it. We, we know the, however we want to do the hearing and present that statement is, is totally up to the veteran, it's, which is really nice. The hearing doesn't have to go a certain way. It's not like a courtroom proceeding. There's no federal rules of evidence. It's really what works for the veteran. Some are more comfortable sharing, again, because they remember it like it was yesterday. Others like to read a statement Regardless of how you share the information, it's so important to get that out in a clear, cogent way for the judge. It helps them to understand the case and the veteran's perspective and what they experienced. Otherwise, they're just reading through statements and service treatment records and military personnel records. And we thousands of pages that. of that gets really old really fast. Yeah. And and who's to say that they're, re- I mean, they have an obligation to read everything, but we like to make sure that we use that hearing for the veteran, use that time appropriately and say, listen, we're, we're talking about service connection. We're talking about putting the veteran at the border or, to, or the perimeter, excuse me, in Thailand at a base. We're talking about their blue water service. Now's the chance. Let's get all of this out on the table. Let's talk about specific memories and just anecdotal things like that they remember going into the jungle. All of that's great to hear. I mean, not only is it interesting, of course, as an advocate, because we enjoy this work and we want to help veterans, but these details are things that are not being made up. These are real memories that can be associated with their period of service. They may not all be documented because we know that not everything was documented well, but the veteran is presumed to be credible to testify to his own experience. So it's very important and it's something we can help you work on if you're having trouble getting words onto paper, which we know it can be challenging depending on the circumstance. And especially a lot of this was traumatic and we understand, we recognize and understand that, but we try to explain you have this chance. This is a really unique opportunity. Let's try to do everything we can to get all this information out there so the judge can hear you. And again, if you need to break, cause you have a period of getting emotional, we can pause the hearing. I can read your statement and we can have a spouse read it. So it really is how, how can we make this happen for the veteran? And we try to do it however we can. And I mean, the judges are human and they do this a lot. So, I mean, if you deal with something a lot, you recognize when things have the tinge of truth and and experience uh, versus like, yeah, I was a super Delta sniper in, uh, you know, some other place and I don't have any records. And they only put down that I was a uh, clerk to hide my secret agentness. (laughs) Right. Okay. That may not be as accurate and that may not be as such a good example, but 99% of the time they recognize when things are the way they are because they've seen it before. This isn't their first rodeo and they recognize the truthiness. Uh, I'll make that. I'll trademark that the truthiness (laughs) of the statements and and people's experience, because there's a lot of things that go on in a war zone. There's no documentation. A lot of places I went, it's not like we made daily orders like World War II and it was a company element, especially with individual elements. And that's something that's different with Vietnam Forward is individuals go to war, sometimes as part of a unit, but not always. Right. And that's a whole different ball of wax than having the daily register of who's there and all these things from like the Civil War on. Right. It changes things and how records are kept and the records are terrible. And that's an important caveat to make. And and that's why the presumption helps, because you're not having to prove as much. You don't have to show the VA that something happened to the extent that it might not be documented, because we can't make records appear out of nowhere. Right. If they were burned in the fire or if they just they weren't there because they weren't 
created at the time, whether it's a record of where they were, if they were you know, on a mission, or if it was a treatment of a condition that they were out in combat and there's no record. I mean, those are things we can't create when they're not there. But what we can do is talk about it and explain it and, and show that this happened. This was real. Here's my experience. Here's a buddy statement from someone I served with who can say that this happened, who was with me when it happened. My wife, who I wrote a letter home to, my kids, who I told these stories to, all of this is real. This is information that is very real and credible and helps a veteran in their pursuit of disability compensation. And then that's what we try to do. We try to get as creative as possible and cast a really wide net while staying focused you know, on the mission, which is these three elements of service connection. But we have a lot of latitude as to how we can show the elements, especially for the in-service piece, the nexus piece. Really, we need a medical opinion, but we can explain why there might not be, you know, 30 years of treatment records. We can at least explain that. And then, of course, the diagnosed disability, that goes without saying you have to have that. We've talked to Agent Orange. We've talked about Camp Lejeune. I don't I always call it dirty water, but that's not it. it's uh, <laughs> Camp Lejeune exposure, contaminated water. Contaminated water. <laughs> and but we have a new one and it's somewhat unique to the Iraq and Afghanistan war. It's the burn pits where literally everything, batteries, trash, feces, everything uh, was burned. Uh, That's how we got rid of stuff. uh, So it didn't go back and get reused or what have you. And this has been a real problem because it's causing all sorts of issues. Yeah. And like you said, it's new and it's not new to veterans who've been experiencing this for decades, but it's now new to the presumption conversation, if you will. And this is, if you're interested in the law, it's 38 CFR 3.320, and it's classified as claims based on exposure to particulate matter. And again, this is 2021. This is very new. So when you talk about, are these presumptive lists set in stone? No, they're not. I mean, they're constantly changing and growing. And and VA recently added three presumptive conditions related to this particular matter exposure. And after years of advocating for presumptive conditions, this is a really important step for veterans who served in these areas who were exposed to burn pits. And, and all of what you just described was burned and the smoke and the fumes and stand, sand, dust, just pollution, burning feces and we have, you know, smoke from oil well fires. All of this is sort of encapsulated in this new presumption and the new presumptive conditions. Again, I expect they will continue to grow this list. For now, there it's asthma, rhinitis, and sinusitis. So, is that it, or there more? Right now, those are the three. Those are the three. Yeah. For burn pit exposure. And again, to be eligible for benefits, you must have gotten one of these conditions within 10 years of your separation from active service. And it can't be a seasonal allergy or an acute disability in nature. It has to be a chronic disability. And what's unique is that if these conditions are met such that you, and I'll read just to want to make sure I get this period of service right. We have this expansion of benefits who for veterans who served in Afghanistan, Djibouti, Syria, Uzbekistan during the Persian Gulf War from September 19, 2001 to present day, or the Southwest Asia Theater of Operations from August 2, 1990 to present. If you meet that service period, which again is many veterans who fall in, in that category, who had that burn pit exposure and have one of these three conditions that was diagnosed within 10 years of separation, that presumption is now conceded, which is a really big step in the right direction. Plenty more work to go for sure, but a step in the right direction for. for so that's a little different than the others where it had to be diagnosed within 10 years. 
this condition having to have this one having been diagnosed. Yeah. Typically what they like to see with other presumptives for some, like for agent orange exposure, they want to see early onset neuropathy, for example, 10, 10% disabling within a year of getting out of service, something to that effect. Don't quote me on that, but I'm fairly positive. That's what they look at other conditions. 20, 30 years down the road, I have diabetes. I served in country nexus is presumed. This is distinct to this period of service, to these burn pits, this 10 years of separation. We'll see if they broaden it, if they change it, if they add more disabilities. Again, it's very new, but if you are someone out there who's thinking, well, I served, you know, I meet that period of service requirement and I have this condition. I've had it since I was in service. In fact, forget 10 years. I've had it before I got out. This is definitely applicable to you and your period of service. So it's worth I guess the hard part about it is that like rhinitis is like running nose inflammation. Most of the time people treat that with over the counter stuff. Right. And so you might have been dealing with it, but you're doing uh, the sprays or the sinus rinses or just going to CVS and getting something. Right. And it's been ongoing for a long time, but you don't go to the doctor for a runny nose or being congested. So that's where it's kind of important to make sure you go and get tested, especially if you're within that 10 year window. So if you're outside the 10 year window, you got out, let's say, uh, 10 years, 11 years ago. Uh, in 2010, mm-hmm. and you served in Iraq like twice. How do you go ahead and, and sort of, is there a chance to get it? It won't be necessarily presumptive, but you're getting closer to that edge. I say file a claim. I think that what, what I have found to be really helpful in going through veterans records is looking at their post-deployment assessments where they have to, and you may have filled these out yourself. Is Everyone is, lies on these. <laughs> well, I can't, I don't want to know about that. But when I, when I have read some that are very compelling, because they'll list all these things where they were exposed to and all these issues they were having. And the VA will say, well, there's no indication that you have it. And I say, well, let's look back at these assessments and and we could spin that and use it and say, well, it's not comprehensive enough too. It depends on what we're arguing. But oftentimes they'll ask very pointed questions about exposure during their deployment. And, and it's typically directly related to these periods of service, burn pit exposure, you name it. And if they have a condition, like you said, where they're getting over the counter medicine, which we do see, I won't even pretend you know that that isn't the the reality it is we can overcome it we have your spouse stay oh every spring or every every fall we we go we try to go to the doctor or we we re up on our allergy medicine we do this all year this is not just when the pollen comes out this is something he deals with all year long or asthma he's been on an inhaler all of those things that might not be documented consistently in treatment records post service we at least have a starting point if we have a diagnosis. So we can say, okay, we have a disability. Clearly the veteran has this disability. He meets that service requirement. Can we bridge the gap in between if he's just, he or she is just outside of the presumptive window? It's absolutely worth pursuing, much like the other conditions are worth pursuing, even if they don't fall into that criteria of the MOS for Thailand veterans or the presumptive condition for Camp Lejeune water. We want to we want to keep at it and we want to watch the VA and hope that they continue to add disabilities and broaden the way veterans can benefit from their service period. I do joke around about the post-employment surveys, the part where everybody <laughs> jokes and, and 
It was that, oh, if you answer yes to all the mental health questions, you don't get to go home for a while. And so that was always the joke. If you're honest on that part, they'd be like, oh, you get referred over to mental health and you'll come back in a couple of weeks after everyone. And so everyone's like, oh, well, I was totally fine. Everything was good. So I personally... I'm 100% for this. I've had three, no, four sinus surgeries now yeah, with all sorts of problems. And I never had a problem in, before deploying any of that. And so when I saw it on the presumptive list, that makes perfect sense because rhinitis and sinusitis and, and chronic infection, where the heck did that come from? Well, might be sitting next to all these burn pits and smoke and with uh, temperature inversions, which happens all the time. So all the stuff that normally goes in the air, especially at some of these smaller bases, everything gets uh, smoky right at where you're breathing. And some people have more of a problem with it than others. Or it was like a horse cough at the time. We used to call it the Iraq crud, but it was really just all the burn crap, like chronic cough. Everybody had it because it was everywhere. And you're dealing with all sorts of exposures. So the VA actually has the presumptive uh, conditions now for Chronic asthma, rhinitis, and sinusitis, they have to be chronic. They can't be, oh, I had a sinus infection one time and I'm good. It's an ongoing thing, but diagnosed within 10 years of service. So not just when you got out, but when you left theater. 10 years of your separation from service. So you could have have been deployed and then come back. Yeah, it's from your separation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you could have served another 10 years and then 10 years from that. That is how I understand the law at this point in time, Tyler. It's, it's I'm sure it's it's ever changing. <laughs> it always is. And then it's good to see this is a step in the right direction for, for our burn pit exposure veterans who are impacted. And I do expect this will be something we continue to see a lot more uh, information, a lot more regulation, a lot more explanation from the VA. So this is a good first step to discussing it. And and if it does change, we can come back and talk about the changes and keep everyone apprised of what's going on. One of the neat things about this particular presumptive disease is how they had the burden pit registry that led to this, where right. people registered and said, hey, I was, this is where I was at, this is what I was exposed to. And over time, it gives them a lot of data to make a lot of good decisions. And finally, as a result of people actually taking the time and going and participating in these surveys and these studies, they yep. said, yes, there is a strong presumptive condition. So, folks, if you did deploy, go fill it out. Go join the Burn Pit Exposure uh, website, even if you don't really have anything going on. Because long term, just like with the Agent Orange, we don't know what we don't know until we see it years later. And then you're like, oh, I really wish I had participated. Also, they send you lots of emails. So when the rules like this change, mm-hmm. they'll let you know. Yeah. So we've talked about presumptive conditions. We've talked about what they comprise of, how they work. It certainly removes that barrier to showing that it was caused by service. It's, it's presumed. But even if it's kind of close, go file a claim. Go get with the DVS or some other service organization and file a claim and and then appeal it because that's what's likely going to happen in order to make it worthwhile because black and white, you're not there, but you're close. It's another cancer. It's something related like hypothyroidism is covered, but a thyroid cancer is not, which makes absolutely no sense to me, but I'm sure they have reasons. Go file a claim, go get the help, and then 
get the benefits you deserve. But like I started at the beginning of the show, dealing with a VA is not adversarial. It sounds like it. People often go into it like it's a fight. They're trying to keep something from you or the claims examiners get a bonus for denying claims. I don't believe that's true. They are following the rules and and they probably get in as much trouble for not doing it as they do for not denying someone when they should. And so, I mean, quality is quality and and they have a lot of caseload. I mean, it's a lot. So if you make it easier for them, they're more likely to help you, but they do have something called a duty to assist, which is different than most any other place you go to. Even if you file for uh, social security disability, they do not help you. Let me tell you from friends I know that have had to file that you are on your own and you're probably going to need a lawyer. Mm -hmm. But the VA does have a duty to assist, which is different, which what does that really mean and how does that play out? Yeah, the duty to assist, you're right. It is unique to the VA, especially with the disability compensation process. And the phrase duty to assist, it refers to the VA's obligation to help veterans develop their claims in in the most basic way. So we have an obligation, of course, as a VSO to be transparent and to advocate for the veteran. The VA's duty to assist is distinct. It requires the VA to aid veterans in gathering evidence to prove service connection, such as obtaining service personnel records or service medical records or VA medical records. And I like to refer to it as VA can't hide the ball. They have to help the veteran find the ball. They have to assist the veteran. They they must. They have a duty to do so um, by law. And so if you file a claim and it's incomplete or the veteran needs help, oftentimes the veteran will have to go back and forth. And I've had so many veterans say, I have sent this in 10 times. I don't know what they're looking at or are they waiting for me to die, which I hate hearing that, but I do hear it oftentimes. And then I get that it feels that way sometimes because these claims can drag on for so long. But the VA has an obligation on their end to inform veterans what evidence is needed to prove service connection. If they're missing important documents that show a diagnosis or an in-service event, VA is required to let them know about it. And VA must explain what evidence the veteran needs to locate, what evidence the VA will try to obtain on their behalf. And then once VA determines a claim can be processed and they've got all these pieces of the puzzle together, they'll notify the veteran of any additional information that may need it, may be needed still to perfect their claim. So it is- By perfect your claim means like make it good? Well, well, to make it whole, if you will. So we have, at least to the extent possible, right? So we know that certain service treatment records have been lost, or you'll get a file and you'll see there's three records and the veterans serve for 15 years and you can't reconcile that something's missing. So the VA has a duty to, to make at least three attempts to try to find these records until it's deemed futile, essentially, that they're not going to be able to find them. The records aren't out there and they have to notify the veteran as well, if that's the case. We don't have as difficult of a time obtaining military personnel records. Excuse me, we don't, we have more of a difficult time obtaining military personnel records or service treatment records than we do uh, medical treatment records from a VA medical center, for example. The VA can very easily pull those records from a VA medical center, but when it comes to private treatment records... There's nothing automatic. So if you've been going to a private dermatologist for 30 years and you file a claim, you have to 
provide either VA access and authority to obtain those records, or you need to provide them yourself. There's no automation the way the VA can pull medical center records from the Salem VA Medical Center if you're in, in Virginia or Richmond, McGuire, what have you, or any VA medical Especially center. Especially since country. they're mostly automated now. But your right. private doctor, he may be doing the old school, handwritten, and that requires him to photocopy them all and then send them off. And there's a lot of administrative parts to that. Right. Uh, and they don't get paid for that. No. And, and oftentimes making those copies of and I and what we'll do is we'll have the VA request those records. They'll have, they'll send you what's called a, a form twenty one forty one forty two, and you'll fill it out. You'll document where you had treatment and the address of the facility, the doctor's name, all of that. And then you'll provide that form to the VA and then the VA vis-a-vis their duty to assist will reach out to that doctor directly. And then the, the doctor can, in essence, send those records directly to the VA. So you don't have to deal with this process at all. And you don't have to pay for copies of those records. And then you don't have to obtain a CD, let's say, and then scan it in or figure out how to do that. And plenty of veterans don't have the ability to do that. They have to go to a FedEx or scan and if we have to use a fax machine, that adds a whole nother element of confusion. So use the VA and how we can use them is by saying, yes, we'll give you the information you need and you can request those files and and you can execute your duty to assist. And whether it's medical records from service, military personnel file, VA medical records, any government private records. And that's an ongoing duty. This is not just a one time they, they made their effort and that's done. If you file multiple claims or you have an appeal, I mean, you're working with this VA duty to assist potentially for years, which can be frustrating. But that's, again, why we're here to help with that process, because we want to be sure VA is carrying out their duty to assist the veteran to help them with the claim. That's the whole point. And part of it is you have to tell them what records would be where. And and the person that's trying to assist you may not realize that you were deployed to some place or you were at this other place and that your records would be associated with this, like if you're in the Navy, with a different ship. Right. Because they don't know what they don't know. So you have to sort of guide them like, hey, you need to ask for my records from USS Mercy or something. Right. As opposed to Eisenhower, because I was stationed on Eisenhower, but I got treated on the Mercy ship. Right. Oh, okay. And then that's another two years that I'm requesting records and trying to dig <laughs> through to because most of them, especially the older ones, are entirely handwritten. Yeah. And that's a lot of manual type of searching. And they don't uh, keep especially them for we've had ever. doctors' offices say we don't keep them past seven years. And it's not a long time, especially if this is a veteran who served 30 years ago. Uh, so the best thing you can do now is keep your records. If you are able to get them, I encourage a veteran to, to obtain, if they're going to private practice, definitely if they're going to a private practice, every time you have a visit, take home your after visit summary, take home your progress notes, or every year, call your doctor or go at your annual visit and say, can I have my last year of records? Keep them. And I know that a lot of veterans don't have records going back, you know, to when they were in service, which makes a lot of sense. And some do, you know, it really just depends on so many circumstances. But if you have the ability to stay on top of your records and keep them, it it will help you 
it'll give you peace of mind, I think, but it will also help you if you're at a point where the VA says, well, sorry, we tried three times and couldn't get them. And you can say, oh, well, that's okay. I have them all. I've already done all that work. And like you said, you can help yourself in the claims filing process because you have the evidence uh, that you need. But of course, if you don't, the VA does have an obligation to assist, but it's a give and take. It's it both of the the veteran, the VSO, and the VA all have to to work together. And sometimes it can take a really long time uh, to get that evidence, and despite all of our best efforts and organization and you name it. But the duty to assist is definitely real. And if you feel like you're in a claim in the middle of a claim that's been going on for so long and you're not getting anywhere, you've gotten subsequent development letters and deferred ratings, please reach out to either us or a VSO so we can take a look and see, okay, is the VA executing their duty to assist? Do we need to remind them about it? Are there things that we need to do to keep this process moving? Because again, we don't want you to feel like they're waiting for you to die and we don't want you to feel like they're just developing to deny and we have to keep the VA accountable uh, to their duty to the veteran. You know, I hear that a lot about they just want to prolong it and waiting for me to die. I've heard that a bunch. I, I've personally observed that if you give them what they need or know exactly where to go, because there's so much information and the person on the other end does not know all the details. And that's an important thing for a lot of veterans to understand. Yes, they have a duty to assist, but they're not omniscient. They don't know everything. And they may know how to adjudicate a claim, but they don't know everything about the military or some specific thing or presume like, oh, I was this MOS. So, of course, it's there. I They don't know this. Right. And so helping them help you plus using a VSO is always the best combo. Now, you may not be able to get access to it or you don't know how to get access to it. But at least you say I was here. I did this. It should be here. And the fact that they don't have records or what have you may may not be the end all be all of the case. Right. And, and like we were talking last week, getting that statement of, of personal experience. This is what I experienced. This is where it was. That goes a long way. Absolutely. And like you said, they may have been on one ship, but treatment for a condition may have actually been on another and they might have been deployed and gone to a hospital in Germany, let's say, and have we requested those records? If they're not in the service treatment file, have we made an extra attempt to obtain those specific records for this certain injury? If you had a car accident, let's say, and you were sent to the closest hospital, you might have those records, but you very well may not. So can we, like you said, the more information you can provide about an injury or an ailment or an accident or something that happened in service, to help, again, it's all geared towards establishing one of the elements of service connection. And oftentimes, it's the in-service event when it comes to the service treatment records. But if it's years of treatment, then that's really critical to establishing the nexus between the in-service event and the diagnosed disability. Whatever the case may be, the more information, the better. Because these generalities are, oh, I saw Dr. Smith in 1990 in, in Leesburg. We're going to need more than that. We're going to need some more specifics than that. So you definitely can't find think, Dr. Smith in, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> in, in Leesburg in sometime in the last 30 years. Yeah. So Golly, I thought they were trying to help me here. Yeah, exactly. So like you said, help the VA help you. I think that's a really good way to, to sort of encapsulate that. I do hear it a lot. And I do want to dispel that myth. Yes, there, not every single employee of any single agency is 100% all the time. I get that. Everybody gets that. 
But 99% of the folks I've dealt with at the VA, Department of Veterans Services, they want you to get the benefits that you deserve, but they also have to follow the law. And the more you give them to make it easier for them to go yes, the easier it becomes for you to get to yes. And that's an important thing for, I think, for a lot of people to think about is how do I give them everything they need that they can go to their boss and to the public who's the taxpayer and go, I did this right. I did this according to the law. I didn't do it willy nilly. And it's a lot harder to get to yes sometimes because of that, because there's very black and white stuff like you're talking about with the presumptive conditions, but it's in black and white and you served in X, that's a gimme. But if it's not black and white, it's a little gray. Well, initially they're going to say no, because it's not black and white. Then you have to make your case. And that's why you go see the Department of Veterans Services, another VSO. However, I cannot recommend the Department of Veterans Services highly enough because they're all over. They go out and visit workplaces where there's a lot of veterans. I've seen it. They're out there and they want to help. And they have that direct line into the uh, case management system at the VA. So they can see stuff that you can't see, which is really important because they're seeing the same thing the VA is saying, uh, mostly, I guess. Maybe there's some secret squirrel sauce in there. I don't know. But generally, they're seeing it all. Sam, thank you so much for joining us on Coming Home Well and and for sharing all these things that are just so important to understand that people don't always get right because it's really complicated. And that's why they have really smart people working at the Department of Veterans Services and at the VA that are handling these very complicated cases. The easy ones are always easy, right? It's the complicated ones and, and the ones that are a little more difficult that probably make your job more interesting. Yeah, I would imagine we enjoy it. And it's so great to be on with you and, and to share this information with veterans and their families. And I hope it's been helpful and, and there's more to come. I have no doubt, uh, but please do reach out. Like Tyler said, we're so happy to and proud to do this work at the Virginia Department of Veteran Services. So so please uh, let us help you. Thank you. Dan, thanks again. And we'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Hey folks, Tyler here at Coming Home Well. I wanted to give a big shout out to our sponsor, BetterHelp, for sponsoring our podcast. As a veteran-related podcast, we cover a lot of sensitive topics and difficult issues that our military service members face when they return home from war. One of the biggest challenges vets often face is the isolation of today's culture. Nine out of ten times, we prefer just to stay home. Maneuvering through all the chaos in today's society can be debilitating. So reaching out to someone who is qualified to help can be a starting point in moving forward. And that's why I'm proud to announce our connection with BetterHelp.com. That's Better, H-E-L-P.com. BetterHelp.com is one of the leaders in online counseling and will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. So that's a great opportunity to talk to someone and you don't even have to leave your own couch to go sit on someone else's. If you go to betterhelp.com slash coming home well, you can be connected to a therapist in under 48 hours. If you're not comfortable talking over the phone, you could start by texting. They have video chat options, real time options, and you can meet weekly at the discretion of the counselor. Now, this is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy. 
done securely online. It is someone who's trained in handling veterans' issues and can help you tackle that mountains of struggles together rather than alone. If you go to betterhelp.com slash coming home well, you'll be automatically put in for a discount code of 10% off of your first month of therapy. If you don't see the 10% put on automatically, just put in the discount code coming home well, as this will also gets your 10% off. If you're experiencing financial hardships, let them know. There is financial aid available in the form of an extra discount. Again, that is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com backslash coming home well, all one word. They are great at what they do, and what they do is help us veterans to come home well. Thank you so much for joining us on Coming Home Well. Until all are home and all are well, this is Coming Home Well.